Would you take your scriptures, turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, we'll be reading verses 1 through 28, that's the entire psalm. Psalm 73. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued, and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I had thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to be near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. May God add his blessing. To the reading of his word. Let's pray. O oh God, you're our exceeding joy. The very reading of your word lifts our hearts upward. When we come together to hear your truths recited, our hearts leap within us. When your name is glorified, when we see sinners glorifying the name of Jesus, when we look forward to the brighter days. We are filled with gratitude for all you have done for us. We come to your word, for it is the foundation of delight to our hearts. Through your word, we are richly blessed. You promise to bless all who delight in your word. You have said, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desire of your heart. We are here this morning to learn of you, thus to delight ourselves in you. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand that we might reflect on all the good you have done for us. 
to light us this morning. For we seek you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As Americans, we live in a very prosperous land. By the world standard, Americans are very healthy, wealthy, even those at the bottom of the economic ladder. I think this advantage makes the message of this psalm very relevant to us. Many people find it surprising to learn how much the scriptures have to say about wealth. The one thing, the one thing I want you to remember is that nowhere does the Bible condemn having money. Being rich is not a sin. It regulates how one with money is to handle their wealth. It makes clear that having wealth is a blessing, a blessing that comes from God. And thus, the one with it must be willing to share with those that are less graciously blessed than they. I've heard some people misquote scripture and say that money is the root of all evil. Then they take their misquote and they broaden it and say anyone with money is evil. What the scripture says, and is found in 1 Timothy 6.10, is that the love of money is the root of all evil. What you must understand is that it's not just the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's loving anything, anything over loving God first that lays a foundation of evil in a person's heart. The scriptures do warn rich people of their need to remember their wealth is a gift from God. It may have been earned by their hard work, and Proverbs makes it very clear. Laziness will never produce wealth, but no one, no one can amass a fortune without God's blessing. You can work your fingers to the bone and gain absolutely nothing. There are many hardworking people in this world. Why does God choose to allow some to earn wealth and others to struggle through life in poverty? He uses each and every circumstance of life to show his riches of grace. To the one with money, grace is needed. It's needed in order to remember where this wealth came from. For the one in poverty, grace is needed to endure the lack of necessities without allowing bitterness to overwhelm your heart. In Psalm 73, we hear the psalmist Asaph take up a question concerning wealth and the pagan. David struggled with the same question in Psalms 37 and then again in Psalm 49. In Psalm 73, Asaph does more than just struggle with it. He gives an answer to it. Why does it appear that pagans have such prosperous and easy lives while many believers struggle so hard just to get by. I think there are, so, there are many times when each one of us asks the same type of question. I'm sure you've looked at somebody and thought the same thing. However, this is not always an accurate view of the world we live in. Many of the Old Testament people God dealt with were very prosperous. Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, just to name a few. I have already pointed out the prosperity of our own nation, which was a result of commitment to God's word by our founding fathers. Compare the idolatrous nation of India and the poverty of her people. 
They are as pagan as they come, and they're not prosperous. Yet, Asaph's question is very important. Why does God allow some of the wicked to have such a prosperous and easy life while he makes some believers suffer such need in their life? Asaph first shows the problem. He explains God is good and man discouraged. Second, he deals with the perplexity of the problem. He examines the seeming contradiction and points out the source of the confusion. Third, he gives the solution to the whole problem. He shares three parts to the solution. Blindness removed, confidence established, and faith increased. The problem Asaph deals with is the problem of the seeming prosperity of the unregenerate and the suffering of, their, of godly people. Psalm, in Psalm 37, David addressed these questions and the emphasis be placed on the whole matter could be summed up in one word, wait. In Job, Zophar, the Nehemite, says, and I paraphrase, have patience and faith, the triumph of the wicked will be short-lived. In Psalm 49, the one word that sums up the message is watch. He explained, money is powerless to save, and the advantages that it secures are all fleeting. In Psalm 73, the clear declaration of our God is centered in the one word, worship. The message is, you are far better off to have your hand in the hand of a sovereign God than in the pocket of some rich man. It is not easy for believers to always understand the moral government of God. As you observe the prosperity of the wicked, you are taught by scripture, God is good. You're also taught he is all-powerful and he is in control of this world. Yet, for some, their observation of seeing triumph of evil in the world brings them to the erroneous conclusion that God is either not good or not in control. Can he be both and allow evil to reign as it seems to do today? As a Christian... You must defend that God is good and all-powerful. Apologetics is a term that applies to the defending of the faith. There are two main ideas used in Christian apologetics. One is presuppositionalism and the other evidentialism. The evidentialist takes from creation what he sees and argues that there is a God. The presuppositionalist starts with a pre-drawn conclusion. Here, Asaph is using a prepositional argument. Verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. He begins with a declaration. Surely, God is good. Now, the word truly can also be translated surely. This is his presupposition which he is defending. Surely, God is good. You see the word surely in verses 13 and 18. Literally, it can be translated, after all. Applying it here, after all is said and done, after everything else, God is good. The message is clear. God is good to Israel and to all who have a pure heart. Thus says God, God is good to all who love him. That's the essence of what he's putting forward here. God is good to all who love him. 
Paul makes a similar presuppositional argument in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. The psalmist begins with this as his confidence. God is good to his people. Forget what you see. Forget how you perceive what is happening in this world. God is on his throne. He is watching over his people and absolutely nothing happens to them that is not in the end for their good. It sounds so easy. Just believe that God is good. Forget what you see. But I know any thinking person would have a struggle here. I've told you often that Christianity is a religion that requires you to think. Here's a very good example of that. Verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What refreshing honesty. That we could all be that honest. We should all be so honest as we look at ourselves. Asaph says, I have struggled. I have struggled and struggled greatly with all of this. The fact God is good is one of the great truths of the universe. However, it is one that has to be accepted by faith. Now let me tell you, anytime, anytime you're asked to believe by faith, I can guarantee you there's a struggle coming. Asaph says his feet had almost slipped on this issue. He almost lost his faith over this. He looked and saw the wicked having such a good time and seemingly not having to answer for their sin until he almost believed wickedness paid. It's so easy to get bogged down in one of these hard arguments and begin to listen to the wrong voices. Voices Paul called in Colossians, intellectualism and high-sounding nonsense. We had not heard much of that lately, have we? <laughs> this is nothing more than worldly philosophy. What the psalmist is saying, is there, is there, are, some, there are some truths that must stand without proof beyond God's own word. Once you have accepted the truth that God is good and begin living your life under the protection of this truth, your confidence in it will begin to grow. This man had almost allowed the world's questions to destroy his confidence. He warned you to stay away from such foolish arguments, which are, in a, which are, are a very slippery slope. He wants you to, to turn and trust in the word of God Trust in it as the truth and believe it with all of your heart. This is the heart, what it means to be reformed. You're being molded by God's word. This is how you deal with doubts. What was the main cause of this man's doubting? For I envied the argument, the arrogant, I'm sorry. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Friend, what a foolish thing to do. To envy those whom God has condemned. Why would you want to do that? Asaph could see how great a time they seemed to be having. He took his eyes off the word of God and placed them on men. 
because of this, he almost, almost slipped into the same sins the arrogant God-haters were in. Here is the problem we all face. The prosperity of wicked men, why does God allow it? And how do we deal with it? The prosperity of the wicked presents us with a very perplexing condition. There are great contradictions in what we see with the wicked. They seem on one hand to have been great blessings and and be completely immune to the wrath of God. On the other, they do everything they can to insult his name with seeming impunity. Verses 4 through 9. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride, therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Christ brought into this world, was a gospel that was to bring peace to the hearts of his people. Here is the contradiction. The psalmist says the unregenerate don't seem to have struggles. They seem to always be healthy and strong. Flee from the burden, free from the burdens that are common to most men. Now we know, we know this is, is not true of all unregenerate men. We, we got eyes. Many have great troubles, but we tend to focus on those who don't. Those we focus on have money and influence, and they can buy immunity from most of life's struggles. Compare this to Christ's life. He came into this world through the home of some of the poorest people in the world. He was raised in a town that was despised by so many. He lived in a nation under tyranny. He was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He came as a poor man with nothing of this world to his name. He came to taste of the trials of the common man. To show that faith and obedience to God's word are the true riches of this world. With the greatest and the most precious of rewards. In verse 6 we're told, Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. Vanity and violence are the hallmarks of those who refuse to hear the gospel and believe on Jesus Christ. While the psalmist saw saw the relative ease of the lives of rich sinners, he was troubled by their arrogant behavior. He realized these people believe somehow they deserve all they have because of some good that they have within themselves. The scriptures point out very clearly, all men are sinners without hope apart from the grace offered in Jesus Christ. If you will be careful in your examination of those around you, you will begin to see that those who don't acknowledge themselves as sinners have a very arrogant attitude toward those who are not as well off as they are. The reason for this is their view of their own worth. My friends, you have worth of your own. Have no worth of your own. 
but get that right. Please understand, money does not equate to worth in God's eyes. The only worth he recognizes is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you want that worth, you must give up all this earth offers and you must follow him and him only. That doesn't mean you have to empty your bank account, but you have to empty your heart of any trust you place in that account. You cannot enter heaven if you have trust in anything other than Jesus Christ. You know, it's really easy to begin envying those who seem to have it so easy in this life. He declares, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. These people live lives that are full of evil. Their minds know no limit to the evil they can think up. There, as the Lord shows in Genesis 6, 5, every inclination of the thoughts of their heart was evil all the time. Yet it appears that the sun shines on them no matter what they do. No matter how evil they are, it seems heaven does not see their sins. There is indeed a perception by many that there are benefits to wicked and corrupt ways. They seem to be ever, so, ever able to indulge in all types of blasphemies without any repercussions. Look at verses 8 and 9. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. They scoff at the truth. They speak ill of any who hold to the truth. They even work at trying to stop those who would declare the truth and stand on it. They boldly proclaim they alone are holders of the truth. They elevate themselves to equality with God and some of them even to a higher place than God because they believe they have shown through their wisdom and ability to gain wealth and prestige how important they are. They take over the whole earth and they declare themselves to be the blessed ones in God's eyes. This is the very essence of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Don't let yourself be drawn into such a false sense of hope as to believe in your own worth. Asaph says it's very easy to do. He says that all, he almost fell into it when he got his eyes on the wrong thing. The only thing that can keep you from such error is the study of God's word. What is the resource of such vile and reprehensible living? Verses 10 through 16. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I had thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. The source of such behavior comes from the sinful nature that all men are born with. Men love the wisdom of their own kind, and when they see one who has been successful at living life by his own 
pleasures, they flocked to him for wisdom. That's why people are so easily conned. All you have to do is show them a quick way to meet the desires of their flesh. They'll fall all over themselves to learn it. Congress gives us a good picture of this. When they have hearings on subjects concerning life, who do they call to testify? They call movie stars, athletes, and other people who are in the public eye. Very, very seldom do they ever call people who are living through the problem. They want to hear from those who look successful. That's why most of the time they miss the real message, the real solution. People governed by sinful nature never stop to consider there are serious repercussions to their actions. They don't believe there's a God or if he does exist that he would dare to do anything to them. They have such a high opinion of themselves they can't honor the God who made them. The psalmist wonders if he made the right choice following what was right. Here again. The old sinful nature comes into play. Men have such a drive to to believe only what they see. The whole premise behind Christianity is to believe not what you see, but what you hear. Christianity's religion is the ear, not the eye. Asaph remembers all of his struggles. He remembers what he heard. He knows if he had given in to all he saw and followed that path, He would have turned his back on God and on God's call on his life. He comes to the point. I think each one who is a true believer must come. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Satan never wants you to understand the truth. He tries to destroy any sense the truth might make by appealing to your lower nature and its desires. It can be very painful to fight through these struggles, but it is a fight you must take on. You must always remember the source of all these struggles. You must know that it is the sinful nature. Paul tells you in the New Testament, you must die to self in order to live for Jesus Christ. Asaph shows how this works. In this last section, the solution to the whole problem becomes clear. Here is where the word worship takes hold and gives us an explanation of God's dealing with mankind. We just said that Christianity is a religion of the ear, not the eye. Yet here, we find the eye is involved in the solution to this whole dilemma. Verses 17 through 22. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And surely... You set them in slippery places. You cast them down in destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. It's only, only as a believer comes into the true worship of God, as the great creator God, that his eyes are opened and he sees himself what he really is. 
Then and only then can he understand what will be the final destiny of those who have rebelled against God and refused to hear his call to repentance. All men are spiritually blind. They cannot see their true condition without the ministry of the Holy Spirit removing the scales from their eyes. Here we are shown that man was placed on a very slippery and dangerous slope when he sinned in the garden. He was placed in such a dangerous place so that there would be no doubt that salvation came from God and from God alone. Man cannot save himself from this slope. Man has to trust in God and in God alone if he is to get off this slope. It was not until the psalmist was enabled to enter the worship of God that he saw how utterly hopeless was the plight of unregenerate men. He acknowledges how helpless he was before God. When he was depending on himself, he was but a brute beast, but God did the work in his heart. So we see the eye play an important part in our faith. But it's only, only in seeing your own heart and the wicked and hopeless condition you're in without God's grace. Once God gives that grace and your eyes are opened, then you can begin to have confidence. Not only did God do this marvelous work in the believer, but promised never to leave him to himself again. Verses 23 and 20 through 26. Nevertheless, I am continued with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with all your counsel and afterwards receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Doesn't matter how hard the circumstances of your life might be as a believer. That's irrelevant. If you place all of your hope, all of your trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone, nothing, absolutely nothing can stop you from receiving the greatest blessing ever offered, eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, then my friend, you can declare with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Your flesh may fail. You may come down with some terrible disease. Your life may fall apart because of the actions of others. Your physical needs may go unmet. Earthly happiness may evade you for a lifetime. None of that is really important when you can say with Asaph, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is another building block in understanding the answer to our question about the wicked. The believer builds confidence in the promises of God. He will not suffer with doubts concerning God's grace and mercy regardless of life circumstances. There's one other thing that will help you with the doubts concerning the wicked. Look at verses 27 and 28. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to be near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. These are the works of, the, of a man that has accepted the testimony of the scriptures about God. 
He knows that sinners who don't receive grace will perish. John 3.16 makes clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. To refuse to hear the call of God, to refuse to turn away from your sinful way of life, to refuse to turn to Jesus Christ is a sure path to eternal death. The psalmist says, but it is good for me to be near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. To see you are a sinner, to see God's holiness, and to see your need of a Savior. Then to call out to Christ as your Savior is to come into a relationship with your Creator whereby you can begin to grow in faith. As you grow in your understanding of the great truths given in Christ, you grow in your desire to tell others of his love and grace. You also grow in your understanding. You see those who appear to be so happy and secure. Those who trust in worldly riches are really in desperate need. They need Christ so bad. And it ought to be our desire to give them Christ in any way we can. Those who trust in worldly riches are really in desperate need. They face a terrible fate. Unless their eyes are opened, their ears unplugged, and their hearts changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. My friends, I hope, I pray, that there are none here this morning that have not heard and understood this gospel message. For it is the only message of hope man will ever hear. There is but one Savior, and he is Jesus Christ. He came into this world to do for man what man could never do for himself. Now you understand, you've been given a commission. What's that commission? To go and make disciples. To go and tell them about Jesus Christ. He came from the Father to live the perfect life you could never live. He died the atoning death in place, in your place because you were not able to save yourself. He won the resurrection victory so that all who would hear and believe on him could come to the Father and be accepted as perfect in his sight because of those marvelous works of our Lord. Please, please let this message fill your heart. Let it show you the deceitfulness of riches and the only answer to the question of sin that has ever been given. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to save his people from their sins. Believe on him. Trust in him, for there is no other way to overcome this world and its deceitfulness, and there is no other way in which you can come into the heavenly kingdom. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what joy fills our hearts as we come into worship before you. You and you alone can guide us and make our worship wonderful and fulfilling. Guide us in the singing of praise to you, O Lord, to you who dwells in Zion. Help us to declare your deeds to your people. You give us four reasons for our praise. We are a chosen generation that belongs to you. You have made us a royal priesthood to serve you and your people. We are a holy nation that worships you. We are your own special people that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. You sent your only begotten Son to reveal to us this glorious call 
you have placed on our heart. Help us to remember your work in our hearts and to keep us ever true to that call. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your hymnals, turn with me to hymn 164. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing.